Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 35 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Paul in Athens, Passion and Persuasion, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Uh, These are some of the most exciting verses in the entire book of Acts. Uh, This is a very significant address that Paul gives to a bunch of Greek philosophers who gathered every day to talk about and listen to the latest ideas. And we have, therefore, a sample of how Paul would preach the gospel to people who have no biblical background, Hmm. Um, just using uh, creation, using other aspects, uh, not using Old Testament prophecies or other things like that. And so we have in Acts 13 an example of what Paul does in a synagogue, an extended example of he and Barnabas' message to Jews who are steeped in the law of Moses, steeped in the prophets, and how he would do the uh, preaching of the gospel there. But here in Acts 17, what he would do with pagans, people who who are intelligent, brilliant people, but had no biblical background at all. So it's a tremendous example. We're also going to see in Paul's own demeanor and his own heart how eager he is and how zealous he is to win lost people for the glory of God. Well, let me go ahead and read the account in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Andy, before we dive into a verse-by-verse look at this passage, I want us to jump ahead a little and then come to back to verse 16. You mentioned something that is referenced in verse 21. What does verse 21 teach us about Athens and what Athens was known for? Well, Athens was named after the goddess of wisdom, Athena, and so it, it was a center of Greek philosophy, a center of, of thinkers. And so Athens becomes a symbol in the world of, of human enlightenment through philosophical endeavor. Uh, the, the Greek nation, the Greek people were known for their famous philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and the others. And, and so Athens was a center of that. And it says right there that the people who lived there spent their whole time just talking about and listening to the latest concepts, latest ideas, the latest things. And so that's what they did. Athens was known for human intelligence and philosophy. All right. So back in verse 16 where we began, how does Paul react to the idols he saw in Athens and why were there so many? Well, he was deeply distressed. It brought him anguish. And so here's a man who is at the highest level uh, of sanctification, and therefore his he has the mind of Christ. He sees things from God's point of view. And it is greatly distressing to God when people forsake the glory of God and worship and serve created things and make idols uh, to represent their own imaginations, their own imagined gods and goddesses. It's very distressing. It brings him um, great dishonor. And Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 1 that it brings about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being revealed against idolatry. And so when he saw all the evidence of this, looks around, he sees evidence of their of their religion, their religiosity. And he says, and he begins his message saying that you're very religious. Now, we are used uh, in America to secularization where no religion has any place in the marketplace of ideas. Uh, so we're so afraid of a state-sponsored religion that we actually don't allow any religion in the public sphere. That's very unusual, an atheistic public square. Uh, the fact is most of uh, most Americans are themselves very religious, and yet uh, the gatekeepers, the ones in academia, the ones in politics, are the ones keeping God out. But it's not that way in India. It wasn't that way in ancient Athens. There are evidences everywhere of people's innate religiosity. So aside from the, the learned affect of atheism, where you have to force yourself to think there is no God, there is no God, there's no creator. By looking around, you can see there's got to be. But So you force and suppress that, and it's a learned academic thing, this atheism. Aside from that, people are going to be religious. Hmm. doesn't mean they're going to be rightly religious, but they will be religious. What did Paul do as a result of the distress that he felt at the Athenians' idols? And what kind of mission fields do the places that he went represent? Yeah, so in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks. So those are people that have, have, have heard um, the laws of Moses and the prophets and all that. They're, they're already into the monotheism there. And, and the God-fearing Greeks are, are those that want to turn their backs on 
the polytheistic system of Greek religion, of Greek tribal religion, and they want they know that that's not right, and they are attracted to the monotheism of Judaism, um, and they're they're there uh, assembled before Paul ever got there. Uh, they were doing that week by week, uh, so he goes and reasons based on Scripture with the Jews in the synagogue and the God, God-fearing Greeks. But then he also is out there in the marketplace. It says day by day with those who happen to be there, the marketplace where things are bought and sold. And so that's just everybody. Those are just pagans coming and going, and he's out there boldly sharing the gospel. Hmm. What was the reaction of the Athenian philosophers to Paul and his message? Do you think they were open to what he had to say? Uh, they uh, they begin by sneering and they end by sneering. Hmm. I think fundamentally, for the most part, that's how it starts. They're arrogant, and um, you know we we see some some significant effect of this in for, First and Second Corinthians, where Paul's dealing with the the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world, and and how the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. Uh, but the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. They're in direct contradiction with each other. And so Paul, uh, when he came to Corinth, he said, I resolved to know nothing while, while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I wasn't coming in the name of a philosophical system. Um, so he's, he, he had a very strong experience there in Athens uh, with these uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and we don't have time to go into these philosophical systems, but they were well-developed systems of philosophy that approached life in a certain way. And they call Paul a, a seed picker, literally, uh, uh, an idea vagabond. Hmm. It's almost like he has a, you could pit, picture a tattered sack of seeds around his around his neck, and he's reaching and he's just scattering or picking up seeds. He's he's not worthy of their attention, but he's like trying to. They're trying to find out what's what he's talking about, and so they call him a babbler, a seed picker. What is he trying to say? I want to give a little personal story. When I was in in Japan, I was trying to learn Japanese, and I wasn't doing well, but I kept working on it. I memorized this verse in Japanese. I won't say it in Japanese, but it is, what is this babbler trying to say? It was my own personal <laughs> joke as uh, people were trying to understand my Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, you mentioned 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, which is just mm-hmm. a powerful picture of how Paul approached his ministry mm-hmm. everywhere. What was the center of Paul's preaching here in Athens? And mm-hmm. does that align with what he said about his ministry in Corinth. Well, um, honestly, what we have in Acts 17 is what I would consider to be pre-evangelism. I, I think you get a clear, overt statement in Corinthians, you know, Christ and him crucified. You don't get Christ and him crucified here. You do get a reference to Jesus being the judge of all the earth. You get a reference to Christ's resurrection. But substitutionary atonement by his blood, he doesn't go into it hmm. in the text here. So it may be that he went into it more fully because we know that all of the gospel accounts in the book, the accounts in the book of Acts are summaries. We don't, we know there was more said than what's recorded here. So it could be, but I would consider the words that are actually are recorded here to be significant pre-evangelism, kind of leveling the field, getting people ready to hear the truth of the gospel. All right. So why was Paul then brought to the Areopagus? And does this align with what we've already said about verse 21? Is this in line with the normal way of things? In I think it is. Um, they're intrigued. Uh, they're hearing something new. Um, they say you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and 
We want to know what they mean. So they, they're, they're open enough to listen to give him a hearing. And so they bring him to Mars Hill or the Areopagus, which I have been. It's one of only two biblical places I've been to in my life. I've been to Athens and Corinth. They're very close to each other physically. And Athens was the first place I saw. And you've got the very uh, famous Parthenon and the Acropolis and, and all that. You know, those are, those are very well-known mm. uh, lofty structures there in Athens, pretty much the symbol of the city of Athens architecturally. But below it, uh, further down from it, kind of off to the side is Mars Hill. Um, and you can go there, and there's a plaque of Paul's sermon here written in the Koine Greek characters. You can, you can see them there. It's there, and then you go up some, some stairs, and you go up to the top. And, and this thing I will always remember about the top of Mars Hill. First of all, it really is just a rocky outcropping where you maybe there was a structure there at some point, but there's no evidence of it. And I don't know why all the other structures would still be there predating Paul being there by hundreds of years, hmm. but that one would be gone. It seems like it was just a place where people would sit and look out over the city and talk. So there really wasn't anything there, but so many people, pilgrims like me, have been there that the tops of the rocks on that outcropping are are literally like shiny glass. Like if you if if you put rocks in a tumbler in a rock polisher with some some sand and just let it run, and you know if it's designed for that, it comes out. You've seen those mm-hmm. shiny polished rocks; they're they're beautiful. Well, the the very tops, like hundreds of tops of these rocks, are just like that. They're just shiny and slick and polished from all the people walking there, or sitting there, or rubbing over it for literally centuries. Wow. But there's Paul's message, and it's really kind of cool because here's the message um, in Acts 17: a very deep, profound message uh, which touches on many aspects of providence, which we'll get into. Um, but uh, you have this this message in this bronze plaque, and then just be- beyond it, you can see the modern city of Athens. It's a 21st century city with with you know buses and cars and mm. noise and, and all that. And so here's this, this kind of quiet reminder of the timeless truth of Acts 17. Wow. Well, let's talk about the content of that message that is on that plaque for those who go there to see. How does Paul begin his message, and how might we imitate Paul's strategy in verse 23 in our own approach to evangelism? It's a very good question, and many missiologists go very strongly to Acts 17 to get technique. Like, how how should we do it? How should we preach the gospel to people who know nothing about the Bible? Now, where, what do we start with? And, and we'll get into that, but the answer is you start with creation. You start with God who made everything, and you start with, start with creation. But he doesn't even start there. He starts with their own habits. He said, you know, I, I noticed that you are very religious, for I walked around your city, and everywhere I looked, I saw a god or a goddess. I saw something. I saw altars. I saw all of this stuff filled with uh, artifacts of your religiosity. I even found a specific altar dedicated to an unknown God. I'm telling you, you don't know the true God. You know, I think about what Jesus said in John 17, righteous father, though the world has not known you, I have known you. Hmm. And Jesus came to reveal the father to the world. So Paul is saying, you don't know him, but I want to proclaim him to you. So this unknown God to an unknown God. Now let's talk about that. Why would they do that? They want to be sure everybody got mentioned. Hmm. So there's a, there's a definitely a religion of fear here where you got the God of this and the God of that and the goddess of the other and the goddess of the fourth thing, et cetera. And you want to be sure everybody gets honored. And in case we missed anyone. Just in case. Just in case uh, we want to put an altar up there. Wow. But the one they missed is the one who was actually enraged 
at their idolatry and will punish them for it. Um, so to an unknown God, he said, what you worship as something unknown, I will now proclaim to you. Why do you think Paul begins his presentation of this unknown God with a declaration about creation? And what's the significance of the phrase, Lord of heaven and earth? Well, it's so powerful. The God who made the world and everything in it, that's where he starts. And so the Bible starts with creation. Um, the Gospel of John starts with similar words, in the beginning. Um, the book of Hebrews basically starts with creation. Uh, Colossians is strong on creation. So this is a strategy. Uh, we are in a post-Christian world increasingly here in America. More and more people, look, no one's bo born knowing the Bible. No one's born knowing Jesus. They have to learn about him. Someone has to tell them. Hmm. And there was a kind of a Judeo-Christian heritage in America, but more and more people are born and no one told them those things. So you got you know, kids, teens, even 20-somethings who know very, very little about the Bible. So this is a strategy. You start with creation. Look around you. Look at everything that's around you. Look at the blue sky. Look at the sun, the moon, the stars. Look at the mountains, the rivers. Look at, look at humans. Look at animals. Look at all of this stuff. Someone made it all. Hmm. Uh, this is the strongest evidence. I'm listening to a book right now by Eric Metaxas um, talking, asking the question, is atheism dead? And his, his thesis in the book is that Science itself has made atheism philosophically, uh, logically untenable. It is really foolish at this point to think that all of this stuff could have chanced together. The mm -hmm. odds are just, it's impossible because th there's this finely tuned universe and this finely tuned planet and solar system, everything designed for life. And it's like, no, 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 this didn't just happen. Um, and so he begins with creation. And so that's what I would commend. I would start with creation. And in our gospel summary, God, man, Christ response, we always start with God, the creator, uh, the God who made everything. And he's just double clicking on that when he says Lord of heaven and earth. He's yeah. just underlining saying this well, is who he is. Yeah, well, he's going to go back. He's going to say this Lord of heaven and earth, you owe him your allegiance, mm. and there will come a judgment day, and you're going to stand before this Lord of heaven and earth. He is the king. Um, you know, Jesus used this phrase, um, you know, in in Matthew 11, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've mm. hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. This is a great expression that Jesus used, the king of kings and Lord of lords, the ruler of heaven and earth. Uh, tremendous statement. Also, he's going to bring them back to it, saying you will give him an account for your life. So not only has God created everything, but because of that, you're responsible to yeah, him. Yeah, we're accountable to him. Why does Paul state that God does not live in temples built by human hands? Mm -hmm. Yeah, as Solomon said with the temple that he made under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, even that one, the only kind of God-ordained temple, uh, and he did want it made, and he would inhabit it with the cloud of his glory, even that one, Solomon knew, he said, heaven, even the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less uh, this little shrine that I've made. Stephen said the same thing, but the God who made um, you know, earth and everything in his Lord of heaven and earth doesn't live in temples built by human hands. Paul says that, Stephen says that. They're all saying the same thing. God doesn't, uh, doesn't live there. I mean, a God who makes the universe doesn't dwell in your little house here. Now, his next statement is that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, right. which is a little interesting because... Sure. Paul calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, yeah. a servant of God. In what sense is God not served by human hands? And why is this concept vital for proper understanding of our Christian it lives? It is a you know, this, this, this message, it almost reads like greatest hits. Every single verse is potent with theology. It's really quite remarkable. 
He is not served by human hands, all right? And Jesus said this even more clearly and powerfully, said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Hmm. My reason for coming into the world was not so that you could come do anything for me, but so that I could do something for you, namely to give my life as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. And so what we're saying here is a God who is independent of creation, independent of us, uh, the aseity of God, by that we mean that by which he exists, he exists from himself, nothing else does. So all of creation depends on the creator, but God himself didn't need to be created. He didn't need to come into existence. Mm-hmm. His existence is derived from himself. He had no beginning, will have no end. And so that's the the uniqueness of God, and he needs literally nothing from his creation mm-hmm. for his own existence. Clearly, because there was a time nothing existed, and he did. So he doesn't need anything in creation. Um, it doesn't mean that he can't delight in his creation. He does. He declares it good and, and very good in Genesis. And it's not like we are not able to serve him. That's not what it's saying. There are many evidences of us um, that God wants us to serve him. But the key is the rest of the statement. Uh, he is not served by human hands as if or as though he needed anything. That's what I'm saying. He doesn't need us to serve him. And it's good for all Christians who are hearing this podcast to know that. God doesn't need you. He's not lucky to have you. He's not lucky to have me. We should never see it that way. It's by the grace of God that we are what we are, which is gifted servants of the Lord. But having said all that, we don't want to go too far and say that our service is of no effect. Um, as we talked about earlier today, Wes, you know, uh, that verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, says your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So the things we do actually have value and God can use them. He just doesn't need them. And I also think about important, significant leaders in history and they die hmm. and things go on. Things go on. So Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then you, Joshua, take the people across into the promised land. It's like, whoa, Moses is replaceable. Well, not really. There's never going to be another one like Moses. He is unique. But the things aren't shutting down when he dies. So he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Then the rest of the statement, for he himself gives all people life and breath and everything else. Probably you might have a question about that. (laughs) Well, what what doctrine does that support? I mean, it's it's clearly painted in this stark relief against what we've just been discussing. God, who needs nothing, has given everything Mm -hmm. to man. So how's he trying to find common ground with these pagan philosophers? What doctrine is he trying to build up as he relates with them in this sermon? Well, this is the doctrine of providence. And the doctrine of providence is uh, the teaching that God created the universe and sustains the universe moment by moment and then governs what happens in the universe. That's the doctrine of providence. And the middle one is that the universe needs God to sustain it or it will cease existing. So Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus upholds all things by his powerful word, sustains it. Colossians teaches the same thing. In Christ, all things hold together. So the way I phrase it is that God created a needy universe, a universe that needs him. Hmm. If he ceases putting forth active, intelligent energy toward the universe, it will cease to exist. And so it is a needy universe. We should acknowledge that. And that's the whole point of this sermon is we who depend on God for our very existence should acknowledge him as Lord of heaven and earth. All right. And and I'll tell you this. This is very poignant. In, In Daniel chapter five, Daniel comes into Belshazzar 
when there's this terrifying spectral writing on the wall, this hand that appears in the midst of their idolatrous, wicked, you know, uh, feast, drunken feast, in which they are mocking God. They bring in the articles from the temple to mock the God of the Jews. And God has had enough. And the hand appears and writes, many men at Parson, you know, and the writing on the wall, famous writing on the wall. Daniel's brought in. Belshazzar doesn't seem to know him. Brings Daniel in. And Daniel chews this king out. He's a, he, he does not have the same tender affection that he had for his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar is an evil man. And he said, you worship the gods of wood and iron and bronze and stone, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. It's very moving, that statement. You forgot him. And God doesn't take it kindly, putting it mildly. You can't ignore the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Mm. And so that's what he's saying here. here. Um, he says he gives all people life and breath and everything else. Everything we have comes from God. You know, Andy, you mentioned a moment ago that every verse that we get to seems to have just gold in it in this passage in particular. Verse 26 is another of these incredible statements in this sermon by Paul. What does Paul claim for Almighty God here? And what's the significance of Paul's statement that God determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling? Again, this is robust doctrine of providence. Uh, there are no accidents on planet Earth. And so, all right, let's just walk through it. Um, from one man, he made every nation of men, every nation of human beings. That one man is Adam. It all, it's also Noah, but Noah doesn't have the role that Adam had. So, you know, even though twice it happened that everyone on planet Earth has come from one man, here I think pretty clearly Paul means Adam. Uh, and so this is uh, very, very important in the issue of creation and evolution. It's in the issue of the concept of the historical Adam, the idea that there actually was an individual like this. There was. It's right here in Acts 17 or inerrancy or the Bible just isn't true. Uh, but this is foundational. It's a foundational in Romans 5 with the doctrine of original sin. This is, this is vital, the concept of a historical Adam. Mm -hmm. And the historical Adam just runs completely contrary to naturalistic selection and, and the, these kind of things. We have, you know, genetic pool and survival of the fittest and all that. You know, uh, all of those things just unfit. And so this, this statement here um, just lines up with biblical teaching that every single human being on earth derives um, their existence from Adam. Now, what this does for me practically, first of all, it's very strongly anti-racist verse. All right? Racism makes no sense at all. Why any, any subsection of Adam's family would vaunt itself up against any other subsection and consider themselves genetically superior. That's evolutionary, mm. atheistic evolutionary. Mm. It lines up with Nazi dogma and all that, which was evolutionary as well. But it isn't biblical. Um, also, the concept is from uh, of the basic integration of the entire human race, it also points toward our des destiny that we're going to end up in one heaven. Uh, also, in Ephesians, from one man he made every uh, or uh, he made one new man out of the out of the two, thus making peace. So there is this one new man, uh, which is Christian. The idea of of us having one uh, one unity together in Christ, and so this is a very strong unifying verse for us. Anti racism, all of that. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. He wanted the entire earth inhabited. This goes to me to Habakkuk two fourteen. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Well, the earth is filled with human beings, but it's filled with idolaters right now. Mm. The remedy to that is the gospel, to turn them from idolaters to those who actually will worship uh, and serve uh, God and honor him as the as the one who made the glory that they see with their eyes. So I look forward to that in the new heaven, new earth. The new heaven, new earth will be completely populated by God worshipers, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But he said he determined that they should inhabit the whole earth. He didn't form it to be to be empty, Isaiah said, but formed it to be inhabited. And he made it so that it could, could house life. It's amazing, uh, this finely tuned planet so that there could be life here. And he determined, it says, the time set for them, the exact places where they should live. Now this goes to history. Hmm. God's providential sovereign control of the rise and fall of empires. This is the book of Daniel again. The concept that that empires rise to the apogee God chooses and then they fall and they're conquered by the next empire. And almost all of them, if not all of them, but almost all of them are godless. They don't acknowledge him. They're idolatrous. They're pursuing their own agenda like the Babylonians were, all of them. And God judges them by the next nation that comes along. Then he judges that one. This is the book of Daniel. Uh, God sovereignly rules over the rise and fall of the nations. And some of them are small and some of them great. Some of them become extinct, you know, like the last of the Mohicans. The Mohicans are done. I don't Mm. know any Mohicans. I don't know any Moabites or Ammonites. They're, They're gone. Their day is over. And so God decided that. God decided how big the Mandarin Empire would be or the Roman Empire and how long the American Empire would last in its latter part of the 20th century into the first part of the 21st century. We don't know how long the British Empire lasted. God ruled over all of that. He determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. What does verse 27 reveal about God's motive in exercising this kind of sovereign control over the spread and timing of the human race? And what does Paul mean when he says he's not far from each of us? Well, God orchestrates the link in verse from 26 to 27 is God did this for a reason, and his reason was that we would know him, that we would have a relation. God did everything. I mean, yeah, I think about it with this finely tuned universe where physical constants and electromagnetic stuff and the size of the earth and the magnetic uh, field of the earth and and this, the gravity of the earth and the size of the moon and its proximity, the, all of this stuff goes on and on. It's mind-boggling. <laughs> all of that is so there could be life. Well, for what? So that we could know him, so we could love him and be in a relationship with him. That's the whole point. And so he did this so that we would find him, that we would have a relationship with him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. What do you think about that statement right there that Paul quotes from uh, pagan poets to make his point? How, how much can we use elements of truth in popular culture or in the culture around us to reach people for Christ? And what are the dangers of it? Well, yeah, in him we live and move and have our being is, it, it almost sounds exactly what I just quoted from Daniel 5. Hmm. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Same concept, different words. 
But what he does is he quotes uh, a, I guess, an Epicurean poet or something like that with with these statements. And so I guess what I would say is be careful because <laughs> <Okay? laughs> Paul's an apostle. And we, we find sometimes that their ways of quoting Old Testament scriptures are a little different than we would do. I look on them as like police officers or ambulance drivers or fire truck drivers who can do what they need to do to get from point A to point Z. We have our own rules. We need to stop at stoplights. We need to be careful how we quote Old Testament scriptures and all yeah. that and not say, hey, the apostles did it. We can do whatever we want. Um, but you know, we just need to be careful. But I think the basic concept here is that God has left within the unconverted mind some elements of truth, hmm. some elements, uh, some shadows uh, or emanations or echoes of of the original God. And they write out of that, and Paul took it and used it. How does Paul apply the truths he's laid out thus far, and what is he really getting after in this sermon? Well, he's hammering on idolatry here. Uh, he's going to go right after it. He said, we should not think such a God who made this universe, who rules over everything, can possibly be worshipped by something made by man's design and skill. You know, uh, it's anti-idolatry. And so how does the idol, uh, how does the idol maker go about his work? He gets a, a mental conception of God that he starts with himself. He doesn't get it by revelation. He gets it from his own imagination. And then he uses his own artistic skill to hammer and chisel or saw or grind or, or just craft something that represents the way he conceives of God. That whole thing is utterly wicked. Mm. There is no one thing that ever has been made or ever could be made that captures all that God is. And that's why God in the Ten Commandments directly forbids the crafting of idols to represent God. Um, there's no way. You can't, you can't get all of God's attributes represented in artistic form. And so he says it's wicked. We should not think that the divine being who's higher than us is uh, is is made of gold or silver or something that's made by an artisan's craftsmanship. Let's dig into verses 30 and 31. Mm -hmm. Paul begins saying, the times of ignorance God overlooked. What does he mean by that? And what does God call all people to do now? And is there a warning implied in these verses that we need to take note of? Right. I We can go too far with this concept. Like there was some kind of pattern of salvation back then, like Melchizedek or whatever, that there are all these people that that apart from what God was doing with the Jews or apart from what he was doing, that there was some way that people could look at nature and be saved. Or It's just all speculation. I don't find it helpful. I think at least what he's saying is, look, he could have killed all of you. He could have slaughtered all of you, but instead he was patient. Mm -hmm. And he overlooked it in that he allowed you to continue to to live your lives. It's like what he says in Romans 9, what if God choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, known bore with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction. So he overlooked and bore it with patience, but there's still going to be judgment. Mm. And Paul clearly implies that in Romans 1. They're not okay, they're not fine. In any case, we're in a new era now. And that new era is the gospel era. But the way that he cites it is different than most of us Christian evangelists tend to think of it. We tend to think of it as an invitation to a wedding banquet. And that's good because Jesus does give us that sense, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to uh, put on a, a wedding banquet for his son and we're inviting people to the wedding banquet. But here it's a little harder. It's a little, a little more, more challenging. It says uh, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere 
to repent. Mm. So the gospel ministry, missions, evangelism is among other things. It's not only this, but it is among other things, a command from the king to repent. And so we should go forward with boldness in the name of that. We are the king's messengers saying God is offering for a limited time an amnesty in which you will not get the judgment you so richly deserve, but he is commanding you to repent. Doesn't that give you a little more teeth in your evangelism at that point? You just shouldn't be afraid of what people are going to think. God is calling these sinners to repent. Mm. And verse 31 really unpacks why this warning, these teeth should matter, right? Mm -hmm. Because God has fixed a day, yeah. this one who has created heaven and earth, the mm -hmm. Lord of heaven and earth, when he'll judge the world through Christ. Yeah, judgment day is coming. Another thing about verse 30, um, there is a parallel word with the word command coming from God, and that is obey. And mm. that's why sometimes you get some, some, sometimes the gospel is something that is obeyed. You obey the gospel mm. because it's a command from God. And I think in Romans 6, 17, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Same verb, the idea of obeying the gospel. But yeah, the threat is judgment day is coming and you're gonna have to stand before this God who made you and gave you everything you've ever enjoyed. Um, and he's gonna hold you to, uh, to account for all of it. Andy, what do we learn about the importance of Christ's resurrection in gospel proclamation? Yeah, I, it's amazing. Again and again and again and again, the proclaimers, the apostolic proclaimers of the gospel in the book of Acts, never fail to mention the resurrection. And so for me, we just, when we're sharing the gospel, let's talk about Christ resurrected. I mean, it's because the common undefeated foe of us all is death. And though the people we're talking to as we evangelize, perhaps don't feel any fear of death, mm -hmm. they should, they should, because they're dangling over the pit of hell. They're dangling, if they're unbelievers, their, their eternity is, their, as Jonathan Edwards said in his sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's like they're walking on a rotten plank, plank across the, the open pit of hell. And so they should fear. And so we, we should say, look, there is coming a day when you are going to have to stand before God and give him an account. And so as a result of that, um, you know, there is this gospel, and that gospel is a gospel of Christ's death, which Paul doesn't mention here, but he certainly does as, as his doctrine. And he's given proof of Jesus as the judge of all the earth by raising him from the dead. And so he combines Jesus' role as judge of all the earth. John chapter 5, he has committed all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He's given proof of that, Paul says, by raising him from the mm -hmm. dead. Jesus is the one you'll stand before. You can't ignore Jesus. You're going to give him an account, so repent and believe in him. How does the crowd react to his message, and how is human pride revealed in that reaction? Well, um, mixed, mixed. Uh, just like Gospel of John, all the time you get believers, unbelievers, and that's like one of the themes of the Gospel of John is there's always a mixed reaction to Jesus' miracles and teachings, and so also here with Paul. Um, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, they sneered. To them, it's absurd. I mean, first of all, and, and I remember preaching this in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has to deal with res this residual Greek philosophical opposition to the concept of bodily resurrection from the dead. First of all, they think it's impossible. Second of all, they think it's undesirable. Why would you want that? Why would you want to go back in a body like this? They thought of pure spirit versus flesh. 
And they looked on the flesh as denigrated and animal-like, but the spirit, the realm of beauty and truth and, and thought and all that, why would you want to go back into the body? But the Bible's different. The Bible doesn't denigrate the body. The Bible considers the body uh, fearfully and wonderfully made. Mm-hmm. And he's giving us a resurrection body. But they sneered and they mocked and they said, it cannot be. But others were interested and said, we want to hear you more. So it's like, hey, come back again. And we'll talk about this again. And then others believed. So you have a, a, a number of people that mocked. Others are like, no, think about it. And then you got some some people that believe. What does the outcome of Paul's gospel ministry teach us about evangelism? And what final thoughts do you have for us on this passage as a whole? Well, that same three categories that I just said, we're going to find the same thing. We have people that will blow you off immediately, others that are intrigued, but they're not ready to commit, and then there will be others that will be ready to repent and believe. And so uh, that we should be faithful to pursue it and be zealous for the glory of God. And then, you know, cherish those that repent. That's why we're going out as the unconverted elect. Hmm. But I would commend this entire chapter. We have gone so fast, west through this thing. We've blown through it. Yes. And 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 we need to, and the podcast already is too long. Um, sorry for those of you with 20-minute commutes. I guess you'll have to hear it <laughs> twice or something like that. But double speed. Double speed, double yeah. Speed. So <laughs> in, in the meantime, I would just commend this chapter for renewed study, but just let's, let's try mm. to imitate Paul's zeal for the lost and for the glory of God. It's a rich meditation and worthy of our attention. This has been episode 35 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 36, entitled Paul's Ministry in Corinth, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.